You are tuned in to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and streaming on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. I am Nube Brown, your host for Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy.
Good morning, everyone. Good morning, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, I'd like to read some information that was not mentioned in the song. The number of women in California's prisons has increased more than sixfold, from 847 in 1978 to 5,793 in 2017. The number of women in California's jails has increased more than fivefold, from 1,725 in 1970 to 9,443 in 2015. These are sobering numbers, as well as the numbers that you hear in the song. But please do not despair. Let's work on this together. We are in this together. Send a big shout out of love and support to our comrades, loved ones, and friends, community members behind the walls and their families. And we are going to get started with a great show with an interview that Malik and I did with the indomitable Max Parthas. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. I have with me here Max Parthas. He is the acting director for the Paul Kufi Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, state operations organizer for the Abolish Slavery National Network, abolishslavery.us. Co-host and executive director of Abolition Today, this is a unique online modern-day modern slavery abolition episodic masterclass with an international audience. Abolition Today, you can find that at abolitiontoday.org. Uh, Max Parthas is a modern-day slavery abolitionist, activist, celebrated spoken word artist, and mentor. He is a visionary who doesn't mind speaking his mind and facing the ugly truths of modern-day slavery head-on via the use of public platforms such as social media, broadcast radio, spoken word poetry, and videography. He is a historical figure and lifetime member of the spoken word community, his work has received two Human Rights Awards, two Lifetime Achievement Awards, and has been awarded Poet of the Year from the National Poetry Awards twice. His efforts for slavery, slavery abolition, and poetic art are well-respected both nationally and internationally, mentored, uh, mentored by poetic activist legend Abiodun Oyewole. You're going to have to help me with that one. Have you do know you only? Thank you. Of uh, the last poets and the leader of the Black Arts Movement, Amiri Baraka, Max comes from a proud lineage of poetic social change makers. In addition to decades of appearances as an expert speaker and world class performance poet nationwide, his work is featured in anthologies, CDs, documentaries, and numerous publications. Max Parthas currently lives, resides in Sumter, South Carolina, with his wife of 35 years, Tribal Reign, an iconic spoken word artist in her own right. Together, they are known as Maximum Impact, and you can find that at MaximumImpactPoetry.com. Wow, Max Parthas, thank you so much for joining me this morning. My pleasure. So since we ended with the art aspect, the poetry aspect, and the impact, obviously, that that clearly makes in your life around the work that you're doing, I'm going to go a different direction, but I'd love to start with how your poetry uh, affects the work that you're doing, what it means to you in this work. Well, you know, a lot of what I do is talk. 
And uh, for a long time, I was a member of the spoken word community for the love of the art. But after a while, I started realizing that this art form can serve a purpose other than self-gratification. And I started using it for that means. And not just, you know, any kind of reasons, but specifically for slavery abolition. So I felt like, you know, if I can move somebody uh, with my words, as I had been doing for many years, then why not move them in the right direction? <laughs> so uh, I started applying my spoken word uh, talents and my wife the same towards that end and that goal. And we've been doing that ever since. Uh, we made a conscious decision to dedicate all our talents and all of our life to this particular goal of abolishing slavery. Uh, and it's been very successful using that. You know, as a poet, we tend to be reductionists. So we can say a lot more with a lot less. And that helps in bringing people to an understanding of the circumstances. Thank you. That that is so powerful. Um, it sounds like just you know creating more access uh, for the general public to be able to uh, hear what you're saying, speaking truth to this modern day slavery. Um, I wanted to then ask you, in terms of um, your abolitionist work and modern day slavery, I would love to hear your perspective on the distinction between um, abolishing or an amending or abolishing the exception clause of the 13th Amendment and um, and and prison abolition. Uh, you, you mean like the differences or the commonalities? You know, actually both. Like, for instance, I consider myself an abolitionist because I, I feel that modern-day slavery, the iteration of it, is happening within our prisons. So I want yes. to abolish prisons, and I consider myself an abolitionist okay. for that reason. Well, I follow the path of our forebears who were abolitionists, like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Henry Box Brown and William Lloyd Garrison and many, many more uh, like that. And through the years of various uh, research and interviews that I've done with people, I've determined that there are actually four narratives that are vying for control of the circumstances that we face now with the prison industry. And those four narratives are prison abolition, slavery abolition, prison slavery abolition, and criminal justice reform. Uh, two of those, criminal justice reform and prison abolition, do not see what we are facing collectively as a crime against humanity. Mm. Whereas prison slavery abolitionists and slavery abolitionists are of one accord on that issue. That what we're dealing with is a crime against humanity called slavery. And that it, by definition, cannot be reformed. It must be abolished. You can't fix a crime against humanity. Uh, it doesn't matter what you get rid of. You're still not fixing that problem. You have to abolish it. So uh, that's the narrative that we see, and that's the two areas that they fit in. So let's say criminal justice reform, prison abolition, they kind of fit together, and then slavery abolition and prison slavery abolition, they fit together. The dividing line is whether or not this is a crime against humanity. And that's something that we've been arguing with those uh, groups for quite some time. 
Thank you so much for that because um, I actually, I have heard you say that before and it really what you've done is help to make it clear for me as well and I hope for the listening audience that that is really what we are dealing with is a crime against humanity and it would be uh, so wonderful to hear that uh, more in the public discourse. Do you want to talk more about your um, Abolition Today podcast? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and just to be clear uh, in regards to crimes against humanity, there's a reason that this is not spoken of in some of the more mainstream areas. And that's because when you start talking about crimes against humanity, somebody should be held responsible. And many of our government leaders uh, and those in charge of media, those in charge of corporations are actually involved in modern-day slavery and human trafficking. So when you start calling that, they start getting nervous about getting caught for what they're doing. Because someone right. is responsible for this. Uh, as far as abolition today, I've been in radio for 25 years. For the past 10 of those years, I've been involved specifically with abolition and doing radio broadcasts on that issue and that issue alone. I work with uh, New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network for seven years with Scotty Reed. And then I got sick for a while, uh, almost passed away, actually. But a miracle happened, and I managed to survive. So it put me out the box for about two years. And when I came back, I came back with a new, new vigor about what I wanted to do. And as you described it, I wanted to make a master class on modern slavery abolition because many people did not understand it. And so with my co-host, Yusuf Hassan, we started doing exactly that. And we're up to... 30 episodes now. Each episode focuses on a different aspect of modern slavery and human trafficking. So we might talk about human trafficking in one episode. We might talk about the Sixth Amendment in the next, the Eighth Amendment in the next. We might talk about the presidents themselves and what parts they have played in making this system of slavery not only larger but more effective. So each one of these episodes focuses on specific areas so we can help people to better understand it. And they last about 90 minutes to two hours each of the episodes, and uh, they can be used in classrooms anywhere to help you understand it. And, and we mix the conversation with music. You know, I mean, what good is a, a movement without music? If you got to have a revolution, you got to have a theme, theme music going on. So we <laughs> Absolutely. Some of the m most incredible abolitionist music you can imagine playing every one of our episodes uh, to uh, really get people into the, the feeling of what's going on. Because we could talk all day, but sometimes a song or a poem says it all in just that song or poem. Absolutely, and there's that pathway uh, to to hear what's going on through the arts. I think that's just so important. I, I agree with you entirely. Um, and so I encourage people to go to abolitiontoday.org. And say again when the um, when the program airs. It airs live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, 4 p.m. Pacific. Okay. And all our broadcasts are available 24/7. We're also available on every major platform like Stitcher and Spotify and iTunes, so you can hear us from any one of those platforms. You basically have a live masterclass going on every Sunday. I encourage people to tune in. I wanted to get back, uh, Max, for just a minute because talking about why um, uh, uh, crimes against humanity is not being put into the mainstream, and I would love your 
uh, your take on how reparations and accountability uh, play into this, if you want to talk about, because we are talking about reparations. It's coming up a little bit more how you see reparations in terms of accountability for these crimes against humanity. Sure. Um, well, there's a specific order of events that need to occur, uh, and you can't mix up the order. So in order to get reparations, you need to end slavery. I mean, if we should accept any form of reparations without ending slavery, we're dooming the next generation to worse than what we're ignoring now. Because if we don't end it, the oppressors are not going to end it themselves. In all actuality, they will amp it up because now they'll have a paid-in full stamp on your forehead. And there's nothing you can do about it. And they'll simply say that whatever you're crying out now, we've already paid you for that or we've already covered that through our reparations program. You should ask us to end slavery then. So it's very important that we end slavery first before we seek reparations. That way we have an end date as to when slavery actually ended. Because as of now, slavery is still alive and well. It has not stopped for even a single second, a minute, an hour, or a day. Uh, slave continued in 1865, immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment was ratified through the convict lease system. And that convict lease system uh, switched the ownership uh, responsibility. So where an individual could own people during chattel slavery, that ended in 1865, but the state took over that job. So now the state owns people. They're able to buy, rent, and sell people, hunt and capture people, put them in cages like warehousing uh, uh, people as pieces of meat on a flat. So that never ended. The aspect of slavery never stopped. And if we don't stop it, they are not going to stop it on their own. So it is very important that we first end slavery, uh, second, free the enslaved, third, uh, seek reparations and reconciliation, and then fourth, support black autonomy. So those are the four steps that we as abolitionists are looking to achieve. If I may just give an example, you know, they got a lot of drug companies out here that periodically will put out drugs that kill people, right? And then they had class action lawsuits. But in every one of those, the uh, offenders have to stop selling the drugs that kill people. Imagine if they didn't have to do that, and they just paid people off and kept selling the drugs that killed people. That's where we would stand if we did not end slavery before getting reparations. We're talking about language here, right? Um, yeah. Because we're, we're, we're talking about something so fundamental. We need to end slavery. But we've become almost, it's, it's commonplace, right? That's how this country started, with slavery, genocide, land theft, rape mm -hmm. of people and, and the planet. Um, we're, we're used to this. This is, this is pretty much all we know. And certainly the oppressor, that's the only thing the oppressor is. It's been normalized. It's, no, it's become normalized. To say, yeah, first we need to end slavery. We haven't even, so it's getting, getting to that place where the language of we are actually living in with modern day slavery. How about this aspect of it's legal slavery, right? Like we had a, there was a, a little bit of an uproar, right? When we discovered in, in with, with human trafficking, for instance, I mean, that's a form of slavery, right? Sex trafficking, human trafficking. Um, we, we consider that illegal. And so we can be up in arms about it to look at that. That's something that we need to take care of. How do you feel the language is here that we, this is, 
legal slavery. How do we how do we work with that? Uh, you're absolutely right. That is the difference. It's legal slavery. Uh, people will come at me sometimes with different forms of slavery. They'll be like, oh, well, this is a form of slavery, and that's a form of slavery, but that's BS. There's two types of slavery. There's legal and there's illegal. Illegal slavery requires police to enforce the law. Legal slavery requires abolitionists to end that legal slavery. And it's legalized through not only our federal constitution and the 13th Amendment, but also through 25 different state and territory constitutions, some of which adopted that language long after the Civil War had ended. And the reason that they adopted that language was in order to uh, use and to uh, take advantage of convict leasing which was the replacement for slavery after 1865. Without that language in those state constitutions, then what they're doing now becomes illegal and prosecutable by law. So we can start challenging slave-like conditions in courts without the 13th Amendment or a state constitution that allows it to be used as a shield against it. We had many cases that have went to court where people have already challenged it, and in almost every circumstance, the court usually brings up either the 13th Amendment or the state constitution and says, look, it says right here, slavery and involuntary servitude is uh, allowable if you have been convicted of a crime. It doesn't say you have to be guilty. It just says you have to be convicted, duly convicted of a crime. And once that's done, you lose all your rights as a human being, as a, a U.S. citizen, and the only rights that you are allowed at that is what is agreed upon by the prisons themselves. You're no longer even considered a person. You are property now. And you're actually sold on the open market in the form of prison stocks and jail bonds. So when people all over the world buy stocks in for-profit prisons, they're not buying buildings. They're actually buying in the, investing in the idea that these prisons will remain full at all times. And it's become such a huge commodity that for-profit prisons are among the largest privately owned corporations on the planet. G4S would be an example. G4S right now, which is a subsidiary of the GEO Group, is the largest employer on the entire continent of Africa right now. A prison company is the largest employer on the entire continent of Africa. They also run all the prisons in Australia. So the entire nation of Australia, their prisons are run by for-profit private prisons. And these prison organizations, the prison companies, didn't even exist until 1994 with the Clinton Crime Bill. That's what ushered them in. Uh, it started out with Cornell Corrections. Cornell Corrections went public in tandem with the 1994 Crime Bill. And within four short years, by 1998, their stock value had increased by tenfold, ten times their initial investment. And much of their contracts came directly from the Clinton administration. As much as 70% of the money that they started with came from that administration. So it's very important that we observe what we're dealing with here in terms of a crime against humanity called slavery. If you look at it as something that can be repaired or fixed or error in judgment or uh, bad things that occurred because people didn't plan ahead, you won't treat it in the proper fashion that it deserves to be treated. 
group deserves to be treated like it's a crime against humanity because it is. We have the largest prison population to have ever existed on planet Earth. Every year, 24 million people go through this system, whether it be through the jails, the prisons, the uh, detention centers, the immigration centers, the courts, the probation offices. All of these things come together to uh, extort money, resources, uh, from our communities at the tune of 24 million people a year. And this destroys our communities. I mean, we're never allowed to actually get to the point where we own anything because it can be taken away from us at any point by these slave catchers. And yes, I call them slave catchers. And I know there's a lot of folks who hear me say those things that don't agree with me, but I really don't give a damn whether they agree with me or not. Let me ask you a question, Nube. How many slaves do you need to catch to be called a slave catcher? Right, just one. Just one. So if you're, we have a million police in our in the United States today, million officers, right? Each, if each and every one of them only did two or three, say three bad arrests a year, just three, where they say, you know, I really shouldn't arrest this person. They really wasn't doing anything bad, but this law says I got to do that. If you just do that three times a year, that's three million people unjustly incarcerated. And they don't seem to know how to do math like that. You don't have to be out here every day hunting people for profit and control to be a slave catcher. You just got to do it a few times and then multiply that times the one million people just like you. And that's three million souls destroyed by this system. Oh, nothing like some some visuals and some 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 data <laughs> to to make the impact. That's that's very real. And I, of course, there's the aspect of how much it costs, which I I I don't like putting it in those terms. But of course, that's a that's another one of those avenues that people can some people can relate to. Um, it's about how much it's costing us to continue crimes against our fellow human beings. And that's the driving goal, uh, in addition to population control, uh, is the money that is being made. It's outrageous, the cost of incarceration. Uh, for instance, in New York, to incarcerate a young person like Khalif Browder, who we're all very familiar with, costs $350,000 a year. $350,000 a year to incarcerate a teenager at Rikers Island. If you just gave a fraction of that to the family, you would never see their children enter those jails or prisons because they would be paying for their college, they would have their house to live in. All these things that they don't have and they do need would be provided by just a fraction of what it is you would pay to incarcerate somebody. So police Browder and his family came from a poor neighborhood, and they couldn't get any fiscal help whatsoever from the government. But the moment that he was accused of stealing someone's backpack, he was instantly worth $350,000 a year. And that's probably the most that we pay for incarceration in the United States is in New York. But incarceration goes beyond the United States. We also do the same thing throughout military. Out in Guantanamo Bay, for instance, in order to hold one of the people accused of terrorism, which have never seen trials, cost the American taxpayer $3 million a year per person. Every one of these people in Guantanamo Bay, we are paying $3 million a year. Uh, so the prices vary 
all across the state in Florida, they're like the fast food restaurant of slavery. So it's $20,000 or $30,000 to incarcerate someone in Florida. But if you go out to a place like Rhode Island, it's 200000 If you go to New Jersey, it's 160000 If you're in California, it's old, it's nearly 100000 there, too. Right, right, absolutely. Right, and that's, oh, boy, you think, yeah, those are just big numbers. And Those, those um, are bounties on our head. That's what they are. It's a right, bounty on our head. That is a bounty on our head. And thank you for saying that because as you were speaking, I was really just thinking this is just genocide. I mean, if you, again, if we go back to Philippe Browder, like if you have $350,000, well, how come we're not sending him to, how come we're not setting him up to, to, to you know, own a business, get an education, um, you know, be a, a force in the community? I mean, it, 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 that sounds like genocide, which to me is what is the crime against humanity. Is, is this a yes. slow genocide is the way I see it? It is a slow genocide. We're not making babies in jails and prisons. So right. you're taking away that chance right there uh, from the very beginning is you're eliminating us from procreating. And that is yes. one of the goals of white supremacy is to prevent us from becoming anything near a majority. I mean, we've been at 13% now for like 100 years. That's not normal. It's almost as if someone is culling us on purpose to not allow us to get beyond that percentage of the U.S. population, while other ethnicities all around us are growing uh, normal. But we stay at around 13%. Wow. Max, I have to say I've never heard that. That's, ooh, that's really ominous. I mean, because it's one thing to kind of feel like and look, you know, have a sense that there's genocide going on, but that, wow, that's real. Thank you for bringing that up. Hey, um, I'm wondering if you'd be interested, um, Malik is here, and he is interested in asking you a question as well. Um, all right, um, so I'm going to, if you're okay, I'm going to give him a chance to, to speak, uh, to ask you a question. Absolutely. That's what I'm here for. And again, congratulations to both of you on your engagement. I am so happy for you, and you guys deserve each other. You look like the most wonderful couple ever. Oh, you are so beautiful. Thank you so much for, for that, especially coming from a couple like you and Tribal Rain. That is like the highest, it's the highest blessing. Thank you so much. We are so happy. It is just um yeah, I'm I'm still walking on on cloud nine. My feet haven't hit the ground since you proposed to me. Thank you. <laughs> All right, hold on one second. I'm going to get us on speakerphone here. All right. All right. Can you hear us? Yes, ma'am. All right. Fantastic. Here's Malik. Good morning, Max. How are you? Peace, brother Malik, and congratulations to you too. Not only on the marriage, but also on the position that you now have uh, out there at the San Francisco Bayview. Yeah, I want to thank you. I mean, I'm really blessed to be able to have the opportunity to promote this platform and to take take on the legacy and to continue the legacy of this iconic national black newspaper. It's very important for us to amplify the voices of all black and oppressed people. And I really admire the work that you've been doing with our, our fellow comrades who are incarcerated and who are trapped behind in and Live from the plantation? Yes, sir. That comes that's out amazing. tonight. Yes, mm -hmm. That's amazing work. Uh, for those that uh, don't know, Live from the Plantation is a program that we put together at Abolition Today. It is 
uh, 100% created by, developed by, uh, content provided by, and hosted by prisoners behind bars. And the reason why this work is so important is because many times the prison officials who are over this prison industrial safe complex in America go out of their way to silence the voices of the women and the men trapped in these, in these prisons. And there are a lot of human rights and civil rights abuses that are going on every day, along with what I want to talk about briefly is the litigation against prison slavery. Max, I do have a pointed question that I want to pose to you about ab abolishing the 13th Amendment or getting rid of that exception clause, which has allowed slavery to continue and perpetuate in America. What Do you think that we can actually put together a realistic strategy to actually get the U.S. Congress to amend the 13th Amendment and abolish that exception clause, which continues to allow slavery in America? Not only do I think it, I know it. It's all in effect right now. Uh, on August 28th, we established the Abolish Slavery National Network, which can be found at abolishslavery.us. As of our first, but we're just a little bit over a month old, we've already got 13 states in the union that are involved. We've got uh, three states that have a ballot option to remove their exception clause from their state constitutions on the ballot right now. You can vote for Utah, and you can vote for Nebraska, and you can vote for Tennessee to end slavery in that state this year. So we've already got three on the ballot. We've got Colorado, which has already removed theirs, and Rhode Island, which never had one to begin with. Our goal is to get 25 states on board by the end of the year. That's half of this country will be on board by the end of this year. In order to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment's language, you need three-quarters of the state's representatives in agreement. By the time we get to that point where we're aiming for the 13th Amendment itself, we'll already have those representatives in place because they're working on it right now. So it's not something that can happen. It's something that's going to happen and is in the process of happening as we speak. With that said, Max, do you think once, that, once this becomes reality, that prisoners that are incarcerated in states such as Texas, which have perfected the model of exploiting free prison labor, do you think that those prisoners will be able to file an, uh, a complaint within federal court and actually force the prison crash in Texas to pay them for their, their labor? Absolutely. Once the 13th Amendment or whatever exception clause, for instance, Texas has their own exception clause, once that's gone, then there's no uh, reason or no legal standing for them to deny the rights of these citizens who are behind bars. So your rights must return to you. And of course, there's certain rights that need to be negotiated uh, through a prisoner's bill of rights. For instance, the Second Amendment is not going to work out well with prisoners. But all the other amendments should work out just fine. Uh, so these things now can be changed, as I said earlier, without the court using the 13th Amendment or that state's exception clause to deny them their rights. So, yes, they should be getting minimum wage at the very least for the jobs that they're doing behind bars. And for those jobs that are 
requiring specialists that get paid much more, and I'm speaking, for instance, of the firefighters in California, then that wouldn't be minimum wage. It would be much more than minimum wage. You know, we have, I think it's 4,000 people fighting fires right now who have been convicted of a crime, and they're let out to go and fight these fires all across California. Well, they're working with supervisors who are making six digits, 100000 a year, $150,000 a year, but the prisoners only getting $2 a day and potentially one day off from their sentence during active fires. That is slave labor. Under any circumstance, that's slave labor, and that has to be uh, corrected. Now, I can imagine that some prisoners would want to fight fires, and I don't hate our men for that. They want to do something to help the world, their community, their state, whatever. But they must be paid at least a decent wage for what they're doing. Because one day they're going to get out, and they're going to need money to start their lives all over again. And this is an opportunity for them to begin that process. So, yes, prisoners all across America will have that opportunity to get paid for the work that they do. Thank you for that eloquent description. Max, why do you think it has taken so long for that exception clause to finally be addressed? And I'm curious as why haven't a federal judge somewhere in the United States address this blatant travesty of justice, which continues the legacy of slavery in America? Well, you know, there's been a, a very large uh, indoctrination process that's been going on since 1865. You know, uh, we had uh, the Southern strategists who started writing our textbooks in school. They started changing what slavery was designed for and what it was called. I believe in Texas, at one point, they were calling them unpaid labor or uh, unwilling immigrants, anything but slaves. So, you know, we've been lied to for 150-some-odd years now about what actually happened in 1865. And the 13th Amendment has never received the intellectual examination from historians and judicial experts that it has deserved. It never has. I've seen literally people get up and uh, during the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment, for instance, not only was it Barack Obama, but many other senators and congressmen got up and spoke about it. They read it out loud and it went right over their head that they just said, except for prisoners duly convicted. It didn't even register in their consciousness because they had been taught to believe up until this date that if you're in prison or jail, you must have done something to deserve it. Because, you know, America doesn't enslave people. America wouldn't unjustly incarcerate people. America doesn't hunt people in the streets for profit and racial control. That's what they've been taught. All the way through our school experience, that's what we all learned, that Abraham Lincoln was some kind of demigod because he freed the black people. Abraham Lincoln was a blatant racist. The last thing he wanted to do was end slavery. He even supported the Corwin Amendment and wrote, letters to at least a handful of Southern governors to ask them to support the Corwin Amendment. And anybody listening should look that up, the Corwin Amendment. Basically, it would have enshrined slavery into the Constitution so that it could never be ended in any way or at any time. And that's what Lincoln was pushing. Uh, Frederick Douglass, when he first met Abraham Lincoln, knew that he was giving him the bamboozle from the very beginning. But Frederick had to use whatever tools 
were in the shed at that point, and he felt he needed to move this issue forward. Had Lincoln not betrayed us with that exception clause, slavery would literally be over. But he betrayed us, and it took us some time to realize the problems that that presented. I didn't hear anything between 19... 19- in 1960 about slavery continuing. I can't find it anywhere in any risk. But around 1960, people started talking about it again. Astata Sator wrote about it in her book, where she explained how a prison guard told her about the 13th Amendment. And it just dawned on her that that was the problem right there, the biggest issue of what we were dealing with. The same thing with Angela Davis. She knew what was going on, and she addressed it uh, years ago. Also, Lee Wood and a few others. But they didn't have a lot of momentum with it. People didn't really accept this as a fight that they wanted to fight because they had been indoctrinated. They didn't believe that was the case. And then their predictions came true in the 90s when the Clintons came to the sky as these for-profit prisons were introduced into the global market. So now people are seeing it a lot clearer than they did back then. In the 70s, there was or 70 when the drug war began, or 71, there were only 196,000 prisoners nationwide. Only 196,000. So it was much easier to hide it at that point. But now we have 2.2 million in the prisons alone. And that's not a static number. Those are 600,000 coming in every year and 600,000 coming out every year. And every time they do that, they're disenfranchised. So they can't vote. They don't have any rights. And they often last for life. So even after you paid your dues or served your time, you're still suffering from this exception clause, which has taken away all your rights as a citizen and a human being. Wow. That's a lot to digest, Max. I want to say this before I turn it over to my beautiful fiance, Nube, that I want to applaud you for your continued efforts in abolishing modern day slavery in America. I hope that we will be able to work more closely with you and your beautiful wife, Tribal Rain, in the future. And without any further ado, I'll return you back to my beautiful fiance, Nube. And I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, Max. I hope to see you in the future. Goodbye. Ubuntu, Brother Malik. I appreciate you greatly, brother. Thank you. All right. Max, I'm. Thank you so much for um, spending this, this time with us and um, just your, your, your wisdom, the work that you're doing is so powerful and it's so necessary. And I think I just want to share with you personally, what I'm really hearing here is that we really need to shift how the, 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 the kind of numb um, response that we have been, this conditioning, it's a, this conditioning of living with slavery um, since its beginning and since it was never abolished in 1865. I mean, we're still calling the founding fathers founding fathers when they're really the slavers. Mm -hmm. These men who were enslaving people created a constitution and built the country on the backs of people that were, they didn't consider people. And we, so I just, I want to thank you as well for this amazing work that you are doing. And I want to give you the last word on what you would like to, I just want to give you the last word. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I, there's a couple of websites you already mentioned them, but I want to reiterate 
please go to abolishslavery.us and sign up. Uh, if, you if you're a representative in a state, for instance, and we've got a lot of state representatives on board, let us know uh, so that we can reach out to you. If you represent an organization, let us know so that we can reach out to you. Uh, we are going to own this in our generation, so we need your help. So go to abolishslavery.us, read the material there, and sign up. And if you really want to know a lot more about this, check out our master class at abolitiontoday.org. And we are October 1st today. It's Thursday. And in two hours, we go live from the plantation where the prisoners themselves, who are also slavery abolitionists, are explaining to the people what it is they're dealing with and how they can help. So we need your help. Go to those two websites, educate yourself, or should I say re-educate yourself, because what you've learned up to now was a lie. So re-educate yourself and then lend us your support at abolishslavery.us. And I just want to thank you and Malik for giving me this opportunity to speak to your audience and to give them the understanding and clarity that they may have been lacking. Thank you so much. Thank you, too, Max. And please, um, you know, just the, the blessings and, and just so much support and love for you and uh, Tribal Reign. I'm glad you are feeling better. Um, and we will definitely speak again. Thank you so much for joining us. I see. All right. That was Max Parthas. Amongst many other things, he is co-host and executive director of Abolition Today. It is an online masterclass. And I do encourage all of you to go to abolitiontoday.org and get involved in that class. All right. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and we are live streaming on kpoo.com. You are listening to Prison Focus Radio, and I am your host, Nube Brown. It is fall fundraising time for KPOO. I encourage all of you to give what you can. Listen, it takes all of us, big and small, everything in between, whatever you can give to this fantastic radio station uh, would be greatly appreciated. We really cannot do it without all of you. This is a community listener radio supported supported uh, radio station. Um, and I am so grateful to be able to have this very precious hour here on Prison Focus Radio here at KPOO. So please give what you can. You can show your support and love by sending in a donation to KPOO, P.O. Box 156650, San Francisco, California, 94115, or you can go to kpoo.com and click there to make a donation. And a donation is really an investment. It really is saying this, this thing that I'm going to give my my hard-earned funds to or I'm going to share how about just sharing it means you're investing in something that's important to your community and KPOO is one of those stations radio stations that we desperately need uh, during these times so if you can please share the love all right I am now going to read an article by our one of our beloved California hunger strikers Ifuma Modibo Cambon. This article was published on September 22nd, 2020, 
um, in Common Dreams, and you can find this article and other articles from Common Dreams at commondreams.org. I Survived COVID-19 at Folsom State Prison, a story of unaccountable action, negligence, deliberate indifference, and deception by Ifuma Modibo Cambon. I am a survivor of the terrible disease of COVID-19 at Folsom State Prison. I am a survivor of the terrible negligence and deliberate indifference of individuals responsible for my care. This experience reaffirmed for me that our lives simply don't matter. I am one of the voices and numbers assigned to a cage, a cot, a shelf in my human warehouse. My legal name is Daryl Burnett. My California Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections number is B60892. My physical body has been imprisoned for 46 years, but my spirit is strong, free, and resilient. I too laugh, smile, feel, care, and love. I hold a profound respect for humanity. I am a father, son, brother, uncle, nephew, and friend. I dare to challenge the people outside these walls to see and judge me through a humanistic prism. How did this event occur? Previously at Folsom, Different buildings were quarantined and isolated as a result of a staff person testing positive. But this time it was different. People said that a staff person who had worked at San Quentin was the host for the spread of the virus. That staff person was released into the general population. It is easy to give the excuse that custodial and medical staff did the best they could do under the circumstances, but I beg to differ. Days before the outbreak became huge, prisoners were complaining about symptoms they were experiencing. Shortness of breath, muscle pain, coughing, loss of a sense of smell or taste. They were simply dismissed and thrown back into their cages. This led to the spread of the virus. What sense does it make for medical and custodial staff to to send someone back to their cell who is suffering from all the symptoms of COVID-19? One of these individuals who complained of symptoms was placed in a cell right above me. He was later given a COVID-19 test and the result was positive. He was then placed into Tent City, a set of tents for people who tested positive. I was awakened at 10 p.m. on August 6th to the banter of men saying that they were going to be moved to another part of the prison because they had been exposed to COVID-19. Until I fell asleep, I listened to their fears and concerns. They talked about what they believed was the source of the virus. It didn't take a rocket scientist to reach a scientific conclusion that either custodial or medical staff were responsible for infecting us with the virus. By now, their neglect and indifference has led to hundreds of men at Folsom State Prison being infected. On the morning of August 7th, mealtime was announced over the speaker as if nothing had happened. Why wasn't the prison immediately put on lockdown after a test came back positive? Why take the risk of more prisoners becoming infected? In my view, these actions were negligence. Common sense should have been exercised, and medical staff should have been informed should have informed custodial staff of the likelihood of an outbreak. After mealtime, where I probably became infected, I walked down the hallway to receive my morning medications. I asked a nurse whether they were going to test everyone in the building for COVID-19. The reply was, probably not, since it was Saturday and there weren't enough medical staff in the prison. Returning to my cell, all of the prisoners who were certified to work were let out to clean up the prison. This contributed to a massive outbreak of COVID-19. Our lives didn't matter. Finally, on the evening of Saturday, August 8th, the prison was put on lockdown. Instead of the handcrafted masks we had previously been given to wear, 
now that we had tested positive, we were given medical masks to wear. The building went on total lockdown. Staff were given medical masks and shields to cover their faces. Finally, on Monday, August 10th, all prisoners in two buildings were tested. Hours later, the exodus began of all those who tested positive to the outside tents that warehoused people. I was one of the first of the men to be moved to Tent City. I was there for 14 days of isolation. There is simply no logical or rational explanation for how in a few hours over 200 men would be infected with COVID-19. It took seven days for a local news outlet to report on COVID-19 at Folsom State Prison. This made it seem that there was a concerted effort to suppress the information. Seven days later, helicopters were allowed to fly over the prison to see the new tent city. I am mistrustful of the men and women responsible for our immediate care. Many of them judge our worth as human beings to be no more valuable than that of a chicken or a mule. We are viewed by society through the prism of a cage, a number, a dollar sign, or a statistic. We have been ostracized, degraded, and dehumanized while we dare to demand to be treated like human beings. I survived COVID-19, and I survived the incredible neglect of the CDCR. The struggles continue. My small voice is dedicated to all human life which is lost in this wasteland of fragmented minds, lost souls, and defeated spirits. We must remember the old abolitionist Frederick Douglass's warning that power conceded nothing without a struggle. It ne never did, and it never will. May the, live, un unquote. May the living be inspired by hopeful vision and the struggle for a new humanity. It is always out of doing that possibilities are created and strong, courageous minds are forged. The prison remains on lockdown. That's from Ifuma Modibo Cambon, who survived 46 years in prison, 38 of those in solitary confinement. And continuing with the life and death issue of COVID-19 in our California prisons, we are going to hear this week's Prison Focus Mailbox number 17. And those of us who identify as prison abolitionists as opposed to prison reformers uh, make the point uh, that oftentimes reforms uh, uh, create situations where um, mass incarceration becomes even more entrenched. September 26, 2020. California Medical Facility, July 22, 2020. July 22, 2020. California Medical Facility, Vacaville, California. Regarding COVID-19 pandemic in California, 
Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation facilities. I'm an African-American with chronic hypertension and kidney infection. My life is in danger because there is no social distancing in the day room. There are eight to 10 inmates allowed in the day room when there should be only three. Once the day room door is locked, inmates remove their masks to communicate over poker, dominoes, pinocle, top ramen soups, and shots of coffee. This puts me at risk because there is no ventilation and COVID-19 can be transmitted via droplets in the air. In the shower, there's no social distancing. The shower door is locked for increments of 30 minutes at a time. The shower heads are not six feet apart. There's three inmates and poor ventilation. This puts me at risk because inmates don't wear masks in the shower and COVID-19 can be transmitted via droplets in the air. The cells are not big enough to practice social distancing with a cellmate. This puts me at risk because inmates don't wear masks in the cell and COVID-19 can be transmitted via droplets in the air. I certify that the foregoing is true and correct. Executed at CMF Prison, 6-22-2020. California Prison Focus is a small community-based organization that works with and on behalf of California prisoners before, during, and after COVID-19. We have vowed to investigate and expose human rights abuses within California prison through widespread dissemination of our quarterly prison reports. We are asking both the inside and outside artifice to get involved with the agreement to come home, which you can learn more about on our website, prisons.org. Our primary resources rely entirely upon donations and subscriptions of our prison-focused newspaper, which is published every three to four months. This include our new zine, Uncaged Slave, 24 hours ago. We welcome you to get involved with our various platforms. Why? Because together, as one voice, we say liberate our caged brothers and sisters. Freeing one is freeing community to end all hostility. So remember, in these times, when the times are hard, we depends on the community. Go to prisons.org and donate now, today. Thank you. All right, that's our show. I hope to see you next Thursday. Until then, I wish you all beauty, all positivity, and all power to the people. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.